Medicine and healthcare have always been defined by more than just science. They are also shaped by culture, economics, politics and society. In short, they reflect us, who we are, what we value and what we don't. My name is Kieran Fitzpatrick and this is Body Politics, the podcast where history, medicine and society collide. Welcome to the first episode of Body Politics, the podcast where history, medicine and society collide with me, Kieran Fitzpatrick. I'm a professional historian who examines the relationship between medicine and society, which over the past 12 months has been in various forms at the forefront of people's minds around the world due to the spread of COVID-19. The current pandemic has demonstrated the many ways in which infectious diseases shape our societies and their politics. At this stage, I'd imagine there are at least dozens, if not hundreds, of commentaries upon the way in which the current pandemic has seen massive transfers in wealth away from those already struggling to those who already had more than enough in the first place. How it's called into question the ways in which children and young people are educated and what the fundamental purposes of education are and should be. The frigidity of our healthcare systems to large-scale shocks and a new expression of pre-existing beliefs about what truth is and is not. These sorts of commentaries are what politics means in the title of this podcast. They relate to the definition of politics that I came across first as a teenager. Politics is the process of deciding who gets what, when and how. It's a definition that I only recently discovered was coined by an American communications theorist named Harold Laswell and distinguishes politics from governance, which is really concerned with the formal institutions, rules and norms that define the ways in which societies are run. I like Laswell's definition of politics because it's rooted in concerns about resources, how they get divided up between us, by whom and for what reasons. There's something tangible about it. Therefore, it allows us to think about politics as a complex set of processes that happen not just in parliaments or courtrooms, but in everyday life too. The simplicity of Laswell's definition gives us a toolkit through which to understand those processes' complexity. In this series, we're going to begin to understand how our politics has been defined by the effect of infectious disease on human populations over the course of the last 200 odd years and the ways in which those populations have responded or had their ways of life changed in consequence. My hope is that this series should make our current moment seem more typical and more relatable than perhaps we might think. Culturally, 2020 and early 2021 are now being defined as the worst years ever May's atypical and aberrant in the degree to which the norm, also a central theme of the past 12 months, has been upended and replaced by strange, new, disease-ridden realities. However, this couldn't be further from what history tells us. In fact, our assumptions about the old normal in large parts of Europe, North America and Australasia 
that we were somehow immune from widespread incidences of infectious disease was the aberration within the context of a longer story in which such diseases regularly called our society's structures into question. So in this first series of Body Politics, we're going to come to an understanding about how our current experience of COVID-19 is actually typical of the sorts of challenges and historical changes that shape the world in which our recent ancestors both lived and died. This is a story that can be told throughout human history. The bubonic plague, or the Black Death, that killed one-third of Europe's population in the 1340s was a disease that spread successfully because of economic and political conditions. One route was through merchants from the city of Genoa, in what we now know as Italy, fleeing back to Europe on their ships from the Black Sea, having been attacked by Mongol armies at one of their trading stations. Another, perhaps better known, is that the disease's carrier, Black Rats, piggybacked on shipments of grain from Africa and Asia into Europe. But in this series, our story dates to roughly the last 220 years, from 1800 to the present day. 1800 matters because it was around that time that states first started trying to protect their populations on a massive scale against a particularly destructive disease, smallpox, using the technique with which we are all now so concerned, vaccination. We're going to come to the detail of this moment a little later in the series, but you probably know the outlines of that story already. In 1796, the English doctor Edward Jenner took the matter arising from a disease called cowpox and used it to treat smallpox in an eight-year-old boy named James Phipps. He couldn't prove the mechanism by which this treatment worked. Science caught up later in the century. But he knew that it was effective from having observed the immunity of farmers and milkmaids to smallpox after previous infection with cowpox during his rounds in rural Gloucestershire, England. Two years later, in 1798, he published an inquiry into the variole vaccine, known as the cowpox, which was the first of many publications that helped secure his subsequent reputation as the founding father of modern public health. On its first page, he contextualised his smallpox vaccination as follows. The deviation of man from the state in which he was originally placed by nature seems to have proved to him a prolific source of diseases. From the love of splendour, from the indulgences of luxury, and from his fondness for amusement, he has familiarised himself with a great number of animals, which may not originally have been intended for his associates. Jenner was describing, in the language of his time, what we would now think of as zoonosis, that is, the transmission of diseases from animal species to humans which is how COVID-19 also made its jump into human populations a year ago. Jenner was couching zoonosis as the product of an economic system, consumerism, that was one of the hallmarks of the late 18th century. Consumerism was fed by a worldwide economic system of markets, interconnected by trade routes that were created and maintained by empires, whose point of origin and major beneficiaries were European states, such as Britain, France and the Netherlands. Fast forward 215 years to 2013 to another writer concerned with diseases, David Quammen, and his book, Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. In that book, Quammen demonstrates how our cultural appetites in the late 20th century 
and they're being sated by economic systems that exploit natural resources and destroy finely balanced ecosystems in the process, have been providing the potential for a global pandemic for quite some time. Writing of the outbreak of SARS, another form of coronavirus, in 2003, Kwame described how the viruses spread in southern China and Hong Kong had emerged in the sale of wild, live animals in open markets. Quoting another writer, Carl Greenfeld, Quammen reported that these markets responded to a cultural phenomenon known as the era of wild flavour. This was a contemporary evolution of what Jenner would have called man's indulgences of luxury, and was a cultural value held amongst the peoples of southern China that eating a wide variety of wild animals was considered a way of gaining face, prosperity and good luck. These are the sorts of stories that we're going to become familiar with over the course of this series. With the help of historians from among the world's most prominent universities, we're going to treat infectious disease as less a scientific problem to be solved and more a way of viewing the politics of particular eras and historical periods that provide precedence to our own current COVID moment. Our subject this week is yellow fever a viral disease that is regularly experienced in 47 countries across Central and South America and Africa. Here's the World Health Organization's Director of Pandemic and Epidemic Diseases, Dr. Sylvie Briand, defining the disease in the wake of a severe outbreak in Angola, West Africa, in 2016. So yellow fever is a disease that is transmitted by a virus. It's carried by a mosquito called Aedes uh, from the Aedes family, and it's called Aedes aegypti. The first, very first few days is hard to recognize because it's a disease that has symptoms that are common to many viral diseases, fever, headache, uh, muscle ache, uh, etc. But then after the first phase, you enter in the real yellow fever phase because the patient has fever but is also jaundice. Sometime at the end of the disease you can have hemorrhage and this is why it's very important for yellow fever patient to go as soon as they have symptoms and they suspect it's yellow fever to go and to seek treatment. There is no specific treatment but a good uh, clinical management can help also to uh, for people to recover from this disease and not die from it. Although very much a regional disease that circulates mostly around the countries bordering the southern Atlantic Ocean, in this episode we're encountering yellow fever from a particularly American perspective. And in this next clip, we can hear the origin of the WHO's approach to fighting the disease, one based on tracing the cause and treating it using vaccines, emerging within the context of American military power, at a crucial period in its rise to prominence as a global superpower, the Second World War. Today, these men, soldiers of a free country, are leaving to fight. Today, our battlefield is the world. Our transports, our freighters go to the furthest islands of the earth. Soldiers from New York and Chicago are moving up to fight in the empty desert. And in the jungle, men from the little towns of Montana moving up in the heat of Asia, Africa, the Caribbean. Their job is fighting. They must be kept safe against disease, against the special dangers of the jungle. 
Behind our men stand scientists of the Western Hemisphere. Here were their first battles. Their weapons, the test tube, the sterilized needle. Between the equator and the Panama Canal, they fought their silent war. Their enemy was hidden in the green branches of the jungle. Above their heads was the solution to the mystery of jungle yellow fever. The guilty mosquitoes lived and bred, not in pools on the ground, but in the treetops. A man who came here to work or to fight on these dark trails was condemned to grow sick, delirious, eyes and skin turning yellow before he died. A disease of young men, of those who built a house or a camp in the infected forest. Death waited for them in the heat of the valleys. Wooden crosses for the young men who dared to walk in the jungle. They died from the bite of a mosquito. In a few laboratories... Titled The Silent War, we can hear the story that this film told resonating in our own time. How many times have we referred to declaring war on COVID-19 in the last 12 months? Also, medical science had a significance in that story that's familiar to us as a source of objective truth used to know and vanquish a deadly disease that threatened the lives of, in this case, soldiers who were fighting the good fight against fascism around the world. However, if we push a little further back in time, yellow fever comes to reflect a very different type of politics in America, particularly in the deep south around the city of New Orleans. This was a politics where science was far more contested and immunity wasn't secured through a vaccine whose spread helped to uphold democracy, but through the colour of one's skin and the upholding of a pervasive slave economy. According to the late Louis Armstrong, it was in New Orleans where the blues was born, and it's the city's history through which we're going to understand yellow fever. Because just as the blues was born out of the experiences of oppression, extreme hardship, and violent remaking of the self amongst African Americans under slavery in 19th century America, yellow fever was a crucial, if little known component of the maintenance of the slave economy that stoked the initial energies that went into creating the blues. As our guest today, the historian of slavery and infectious disease in 19th century America, Catherine Oliverius, has written, in New Orleans, a person would not necessarily want to avoid yellow fever, as in the city, the necessities and temptations of business, namely wealth through cotton, sugar and slaves, made risking death and gaining immunity to yellow fever indispensable for whites wishing to gain wealth, prestige and power. In New Orleans' slave economy, it was yellow fever that decided who got what, when and how. But of course, New Orleans was only a single node or point in a vast economic network that added up to the slave economy as it had existed in America for centuries until 1864, when Lincoln signed into law the 13th Amendment, the South's society, political institutions, and economy 
had been based on an expansive system of slave labour, which was divided by the category of race. For several centuries before, supplies of slaves, numbering in the millions, had been obtained from the western coasts of Africa, from what are now countries like Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea. And if you're ever in the British city of Liverpool, there is a phenomenal museum to the history of the transatlantic slave trade down in the Docklands area um, that is well worth a visit. After 1807, the United States, along with Britain, abolished the practice of transporting slaves across the Atlantic, but retained the institution of slavery itself within the southern United States. And by this time, the world's economic markets were demanding increasing supplies of sugar and cotton to meet a new type of person, which we, we all still are, that is consumers. Consumers and consumerism comes from this period and was to a significant degree based on um, it being satisfied by slave labour. And those cash crops of sugar and cotton were produced through the hands and on the backs of slaves traded between states such as Louisiana, Alabama, Tennessee and Mississippi before being shipped to cities all around the Atlantic. So this is a pretty well-known narrative, especially after 2020 and the issues of racial justice that have been raised in contemporary American politics. However, this episode of Body Politics is about an aspect of that story that you probably didn't know existed, but it's absolutely crucial to understanding how that story evolved. How the slave economy of the American South was maintained by the virus we call yellow fever. In order to tell this story, I've enlisted the help of a friend, Catherine Oliverius. Catherine is an assistant professor of history at Stanford University, and her first book, titled Necropolis, Disease, Power and Capitalism in the Cotton Kingdom, is about to be published by Harvard University Press. I spoke to Catherine a few weeks back, and we're entering the conversation just as she's describing the origins of the book. So let's take a listen. When I went into the archives for the first time, I went in with an entirely different product in mind. I went in, I, I was in this archive in New Orleans, and I wanted to determine how um, how people experienced the transition from French and Spanish colonial rule to American rule in Louisiana, and especially how enslaved people understood this experience. But what impressed me actually most of all about almost every source that I read was how everyone was obsessively discussing disease, and one disease in particular, yellow fever. And when you say yellow fever, um, we now know that yellow fever is related to diseases like dengue and West Nile fever and the Zika virus that was so prevalent in media coverage of Brazil a few years ago. Um, and that all of those viruses are uh, known as flavivirus, flavus being the Latin for yellow. But what did the disease look like to medical practitioners and doctors in the early 19th century, Deep South and, and New Orleans in particular? This to me is both what I love about my research product and what's also the most frustrating about doing research in it, which is that if you were to talk to a doctor in 1880 and ask them what they knew about yellow fever, this is in New Orleans, they would probably give you a very similar answer 
to a doctor talking to you in 1810. What they did not know about this disease was, you know, eclipsed by, you know, it, it was it was enormous. They didn't, there was no cure. There was no inoculation. There's no, there was no evidence of disease transmission. Um, there was no sort of conclusive proof as to why it killed some people while leaving others unaffected. They, everyone knew that it was very deadly. And they also sort of recognize certain patterns. Um, they called it a stranger's disease, um, which means, you know, they it was most sort of closely associated with white immigrants from Ireland and Germany who came in huge numbers to the United States, who immigrated to the United States in huge numbers by the 18 sort of 40s, fleeing both famine and also political upheaval. They know some things about it, um, but again, they don't know how to cure it. Secondary to this also, white people in the American South took as axiomatic that black people, wherever they were born, wherever they were from, were less affected by yellow fever than white people. This has a this idea has a very long history in the wider Atlantic world. You can see planters and doctors and physicians arguing this from you know 18th century, um, the 17th century, saying essentially that sort of race is a crucial aspect in sort of understanding disease risk, understanding who's immune and who's not. What epidemiologists know today is that that's not true. There is no such thing as sort of passive immunity or hereditary resistance to yellow fever as there is for potentially other diseases like malaria. Instead, this is the you know, there is no such thing as sort of a mother or father passing in utero, uh, passing immunity onto a child. Everyone has to get acclimated for themselves. Um, so face the disease, survive and live. But at the time, you know, it was basically a truism that was repeated by pro-slavery theorists, by planters, by politicians everywhere that Black people were less affected. So they say this on the one hand, but the thing that's also sort of this is where it is sort of mind-boggling when doing research, because if if you read if you read enough sources from slaveholders, you get pretty you quickly have to come to the realization that they are trained psychologically to say one thing and do another, or sort of they are trained to be comfortable with cognitive dissonance. They just that is the world they inhabit, the mental world. They will say this um, completely unscientific um, sort of stuff about yellow fever and about black people and immunity. But then in the slave market, acclimated, so-called acclimated slaves sold, you know, so advertised, sold for between 25 and 50% more. So there's there's a gap here between what was said or popularly understood and what the reality was that we can see in markets. The slave market in and of itself is was a place of huge lying and guesswork and projection and things like this and speculation. And so all these descriptions, you know, in which they, you know, in, in which an enslaved person was described as, you know, prime or number one, these are all sort of euphemisms um, that are signaling to a buyer, a potential buyer, certain qualities. And acclimation was like this as well. It's a, but it's a euphemism that can, you know, sort of conveniently, conveniently reduces the person's sort of suffering with the disease into a marketable asset for white people. So race is, of course, a central part to this story, as you've just mentioned. What's New Orleans like uh, as a place in relation to the slave economy? Um, and how does that, that economy change over the over the course of the few decades between American independence in 1776 and the 1820s and 1830s, which is sort of the the early part of uh, of the period in which your in which your book is based. There's a couple of big trends that happen early on in the 19th century, which is that shortly after the, the United Kingdom, after Britain does so. America bans the African slave trade, which means that there's no more legal, technically legal, uh, there's still a lot of smuggling, legal um, importation of enslaved Africans to the United States. So this does not shrink slavery, however, in the American context, it, it arguably it sort of changed the dynamic to this domestic slave trade, where enslaved people from the Upper South, so Virginia and Maryland, where cotton, uh, where tobacco sort of 
centuries of tobacco harvesting has depleted the soil. These enslaved people are being sold now in huge, huge numbers um, to New Orleans. And from there, they will march out to Mississippi and to Louisiana and grow cotton, which becomes the sort of zeitgeist crop of this this time period. And as more people come, both free and enslaved, to New Orleans, disease gets worse. So yellow fever is a crowd disease. It's spread by mosquitoes. Uh, they didn't know this, of course. But, you know, we see basically, you know, yellow fever ha- is a problem that has existed in other cities um, in the United States, famously in 1793 in Philadelphia. But by the 19th century, this is really a disease of not just the South, but the Deep South. So really New Orleans, Natchez, uh, Mobile, Pensacola, these cities, and really New Orleans. And we see sort of epidemics increasing both in frequency and ferocity as this economy, as this sort of Leviathan economy of slavery is spiraling out and out and up and up in terms of size and in terms of sort of importance to the American economy more generally. So just as you were talking about the the changing nature of the, the slave economy that was underwritten by the spread of yellow fever um, in and around New Orleans in the Deep South, I was kind of transported back to my days as, a, as an undergraduate in history and thinking about the whole concept that historians use to describe America's place in the world during this period largely through its connections to other countries who had borders on the Atlantic Ocean. So I wondered whether or not you could give a flavour of that relationship in this story of of disease and, and slavery as well. So the Atlantic world is sort of a historical construction that many sort of historians have used to describe, to sort of move away from this idea of the United States as a sort of bounded entity that ends at the Atlantic Ocean, you know, at at the seashore. So this sort of includes um, Europe, um, Africa, um, South America, and um, North America as well. And sort of in, in my work, it's centered on the Caribbean, which is kind of the heart. Um, this is this was the a, tr- a region that was utterly transformed by um, European colonialism, um, by the importation of Black Africans um, to be used as laborers to replace the indigenous populations that were that died in huge numbers from violence and disease um, at the advent of um, European colonization. So my work focuses on New Orleans, um, which is sort of what I think of as the northernmost outpost of this greater Caribbean area. And so this is, you know, for people who've been there, you know, today, nowadays, New Orleans is the place where I think, you know, bachelor and bachelorette parties go, people, you know, walk down, walk down Bourbon Street and, you know, remember or don't remember um, much about their trips there. Um, this was a d- hugely important um, city in the 19th century context in the, um, to the American economy, but also to culture and sort of society as well. Yeah, sure. And at the same time, you have during this period between, say, 1807 and 1808, when first Britain and then America put an end to the transatlantic slave trade and the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861, the the rise to prominence of a transatlantic idea of abolition. So in Britain, um, famously, the likes of William Wilberforce and Mary Wollstonecraft start fermenting ideas about uh, freedom for for African Americans who are enslaved by this economic system in the Deep South. And of course, closer to home, you have freed slaves like Frederick Douglass, white abolitionists like Harriet Tubman lobbying for the same from the the northern states, what will become the, the Union states during the Civil War between 1861 and 1865. So 
how then does the changing moral significance of slavery in American society become concerned or not with disease and specifically yellow fever? Are these sort of the sorts of issues that abolitionists are concerned with? This is a crucial question. So by the 1850s, you do see abolitionists, some abolitionists make the claim well, first of all, you know, describe um, the horrors of slavery and add yellow fever to that list. That's one of the many cruelties of enslavement was that people were unwittingly and unwillingly being forced against their without their consent into the Deep South, into this new disease context in which they could well die from yellow fever. So you see abolitionists arguing that, and that's a cruelty. You also see the abolitionists saying that the repeated epidemics of yellow fever, and especially the 1853 epidemic, which was the worst in American history with 12,000 people dead, um, just in New Orleans, and probably, you know, at a great deal, many more um, outside of New Orleans as well, that people said that this was God's punishment for the sin of slavery. But I should also say, I mean, in the way that, in the way that we've talked about too, where disease Disease is not the sort of objective, naturalized thing that everyone understands in the same way. You know, pro-slavery theorists punched back as much as they possibly could with their own sort of ways of describing yellow fever as a sign that God had intended um, for Black people to be enslaved in the American South because of the prevalence of yellow fever. So therefore, you know, this was God's sort of gift to whites in the South that that he should give Black people special immunity so that they would work in the American South and they could survive where, where otherwise white people would die in huge numbers. And so you see, this is in some sense, this would be the this is the pro-slavery counter-argument to all of that, which is that they say, yes, yes, you know, disease, it's getting, you know, it's it's bad, um, but you're not here. You don't understand our dynamics. You, you're you an outsider. You fundamentally, you're biased anyways. How could you possibly understand? And by the way, we all survived yellow fever. Um, we're all acclimated. Therefore, shut up, basically, and butt out of our affairs. This is This is our system, and it works for us in the way that we have intended, you know, that we wanted it to. It's cruel, but or it's harsh, but it's essentially an honest meritocracy in their opinion, or the way that they describe it. And how then does the Civil War change the relationship between slavery and yellow fever in the South and New Orleans? Before the Civil War, you know, New Orleans, um, you know, the commercial civic elite there, um, and they're all one and the same. So every politician is also a planter or also a merchant, and every merchant also is a city councilor. And, you know, this this is a class of people. It's really an olig- sort of an oligarchy, I would say, especially by the 1850s. They spend, paradoxically perhaps, the least amount of money on public health of any major city in the United States. And th- so they make this claim, essentially, that the only protection against yellow fever, um, it's not quarantines, which are s- seen to work elsewhere. Um, it's not drainage, which is working elsewhere. It's not sanitation which is another tactic that other cities are using to great effect elsewhere. Um, They say that the only solution to yellow fever is paradoxically more yellow fever. Everyone's got to sort of get through this inevitable process of acclimation. Um, It's just the way that it works here. So they also say essentially that yellow fever can't be stopped. Um, You know, anybody who says that public health interventions work, uh, you know, they will say no matter, you know, it doesn't matter if something works in Paris or in Philadelphia, it won't work here in New Orleans. But the Union Army comes and occupies New Orleans pretty early on in the war, and they put up a very strict blockade at the mouth of the Mississippi River. They stop yellow fever, essentially. They clean up the city. You know, we're talking on, you know, a handful of cases of yellow fever happened during the war. 
after the war, um, when the old um, people who had been you know, major slaveholders and merchants before the war, they come back and they sort of want to retain their, they want to set up everything as it was. You know, they, they would have preferred to have it with slavery, with formal slavery, um, but, you know, they, they want to go back basically to the status, the pre-war status quo as much as possible. They, they made the claim before the war that, you know, they needed slavery was the only economic solution to cotton planting. It's not true. Um, they just wanted slavery, of course. It was, there's no, there's no basis for this um, way of thinking. So after the war, you see yellow fever return, you know, with a vengeance. There's a terrible epidemic in 1866, the year after um, the war finishes. And you see um, people sort of reevaluating this question of Black immunity. And so you'll see some people uh, even say that actually it wasn't, it's not Black skin that was the prophylactic against yellow fever. It was slave status. So actually freedom is a cruelty to black people because now they're going to die, you know, just as whites did um, before the war too. You know, this is that before the war, the people who had died, you know, before the war, you know, enslaved people were safe. And now in freedom, they will, you know, they will die in huge unprecedented numbers. And even though this is not true, it doesn't really, you know, as, as we've talked about earlier, the sort of this devil think um, allows them to construe whatever they want for the current sort of dynamic. And you can see it's this very strange question where after the war too, where there, you know, many of these, you know, former sugar planters and cotton planters are trying to figure out how they can basically, if, if not, you know, legal slavery, if, how they can have essentially slavery um, in all but name. Um, and so, you know, many people employ coolie laborers um, from um, South Asia and, you know, and many people are seeking essentially to understand immunity now through this, into yellow fever in this sort of new racial order in which, which has changed, but everyone, all these white people wanted to go sort of essentially back to what it was before. So this is, you know, you say so you see people often talking about how we were wrong. Um, all those doctors were wrong. It had nothing to do with black skin and or blackness. Really, it was about, you know, enslaved status. And that was what God was actually endorsing. And so, you know, you can see God be angry. God is angry now, now after the war, and you'll see, we will see, you know, black people die in huge, in huge numbers. And if you could just say a little bit more about that new context that you have just mentioned, it strikes me that there's a number of new contexts at play in the 1870s, 80s and 90s, and that the New Orleans slave economy and its being structured by yellow fever is at odds with a number of things. Uh, in in American life during those decades. So there's the obvious point about the way in which race as a category changes after the war, um, the period of reconstruction and the the formal abolition of of slavery in the Deep South with the signing of the 13th Amendment that brings with it a new type of oppression in, in racial segregation that dominates American life until the 1960s. But also in medicine, you get the the origins of what we now take for granted um in that the the idea that microbes and germs are are cause are the cause causative agents in infectious disease is first brought to public attention um by the likes of german scientists such as robert Koch. so i'm just wondering how um how that that change in both medicine and in and in politics changes the nature of New Orleans's economy um, as the 19th century drew to a close. So the microbial revolution, which is sort of fundamentally changing people's understanding of how disease works, spreads, etc. It doesn't much come to New Orleans until later. So, it, so there's a very, there's a terrible epidemic of yellow fever in 1878, right after the end of Reconstruction. 
you see after this epidemic in 1780, or sorry, 1878, in which 20,000 people died across the Mississippi Valley. Um, huge numbers. But now cities across the Mississippi Valley, which had been so dependent on New Orleans because, because of its status as the kind of hub of the Cotton Kingdom, where steamboats and ocean-going ships could, um, you know, they could meet. The, the, sort of New Orleans was the access point to the rest of the world for these planters. Now they can they can avoid New Orleans. Um, cotton planters can ship their cotton to, to Chicago or to Atlanta or to other places. And other cities like Galveston or Natchez or Vicksburg or Biloxi, they can say, you know, we can trace every yellow, yellow fever epidemic back to, you know, your city and to the choices that or the lack of choices that you are making about public health. So our public health is dependent on you. And we're, you know, like we don't we don't want to do this anymore. We don't want to put up with, you know, just because you don't want to quarantine. It's it's, you know, that means that we're all gonna suffer for it. Um and Memphis feels this very particularly in um 17 or 1878 because um it reaches that far north on the Mississippi um, that year and kills you know many, many, many people. Only then, only by after this terrible epidemic in which all of these things have already changed, um, where the economy is lagging, do you see businessmen for the first time say, okay, we actually need a strategy where we're going to sanitize, we're going to pave roads, we're going to potentially have a quarantine once in a while. And they adopt the mantra of health is wealth. Um, but this is, you know, but that, that's the sanitarians, that's, that, that is the, you know, sanitarians motto. Um, and it's way too little, way too late. And already the, the sort of, this is the problem, but you know, this is sort of the arrogance of the incumbent in some sense. New Orleans, yellow fever so narrowed, um, the imagination of the the commercial civic elite, um, you know, they, the system that they had built before the war with slavery was so lucrative for those at the top of it that they were blind to trends that were taking place that they probably should have foreseen, especially to do with railroads, especially to do with the changing economy, I mean, basically the changing American economy, and also the sort of movement west and away from New Orleans as a set of is the kind of hub of the entire um, South. So that was our peek into the history of the relationship between slavery and yellow fever in 19th century America. By way of the history of New Orleans as a society and economic hub that was changed completely over the course of the century by that relationship. I'd like to sincerely thank Catherine Oliverius for her time and knowledge and for reminding us that although yellowed fever would later go on to be a disease against which American democracy defined itself, not too long before it had been defined against a backdrop of slavery and oppression. I'd also like to thank the musicians who upload their art free of charge to the Free Music Archive. It's provided me with the samples of blues music that I've used to give a sense of place to New Orleans in this episode. Thanks too to the Library of Congress, from whom I borrowed the recording of African-American folk music heard in this episode, as well as to the World Health Organization and the American National Library of Medicine that made their media available to me through a Creative Commons license. Links to all of these resources are provided in the description of the episode, available on the website, details of which are to follow. Please stay in touch with Body Politics by following on Twitter at BodPolsPod, through subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Stitcher, or listening through the website www.bodypoliticspodcast.com. A new episode is released every Thursday, so please stay tuned for more instalments like the one that you just listened to. 
Next week, we're starting the first of a three-episode series within a series on one particular infectious disease, that by which modern public health initiatives were first most prominently defined, smallpox. In that episode, I'll be getting into how smallpox influenced the earliest anti-vaccination movements by way of conversation with another friend and colleague, the historian of 19th century Britain, Nadia Durbach. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and speak to you soon.